Hey guys, good morning. Thank you for joining us uh, today. There's a lot of different reasons that you may have joined us. We have people all over the world uh, that are watching. Uh, we want to let you know that we want to know you. Um, if we don't have a relationship with you in any way, uh, we want to hear about your story, what God's doing in your life. And a couple of ways that you can do that with us uh, is by going to our website at lifepointchurch.org um, where you can follow us on our social media accounts at our Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. We have hope and, and pray that this sermon today uh, would help you in your relationship with Christ. Um, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, we want to help you uh, find one and, and know that uh, Jesus Christ is real. We want to help you in that. Part of having a relationship with Christ is being a part of a local congregation. Um, this today's sermon is not a substitute for biblical community. Um, it is just supplemental in your relationship. So we would hope that to see you um, at one of our gatherings on a Sunday morning at either 9 or 1030. Uh, so we really hope that we see you there soon. Uh, come see us and thanks again for, for joining us today. Let's get ready for, for Romans uh, chapter 12. We're going to be in just 9 and 10 today. And for those that have not been with us every single week leading up, this has been like a long stream. Uh, it's very connected. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is very long. If you haven't been here uh, regularly for, for our series, I just want to take a moment. All that stuff's online uh, for you to catch up. But I do want to take a moment to encourage you to make this gathering a, a priority. Um, it, it, it's a priority to God. I, I want to encourage you to make it a priority in your life. Um, I say that because you're going to have to do that because naturally there's going to be a lot of things that are going to compete with your affections uh, to be here. So uh, I want to encourage you to do that. But let me pull you in for just a moment if you have not been through the entire letter with us. Um, the first chapter, 11 chapters of Romans was heavy theology. It literally was the study of God. We did that for uh, 11 solid chapters. Who is God? What is God? Salvation, how he provides it, all of those things, very deep theology. And then in chapter 12, it takes a turn from doctrine to duty, from, from, uh, from creed to conduct. Uh, and basically, Paul's argument says this, Christianity is get a bigger view of who God is first, and then now go live out what you've learned. That's what he's done with us. Uh, so that's, the, that's where we've been taken. Paul is getting ready to really throw out 25 commands in chapter 12 alone, more than any other uh, book in the Bible. But before Paul throws all of these out, he wants to remind us, he started out his letter by telling us, the why. Before he gives the do's and the don'ts, the 25 that were coming, he said, remember, this is why you are a Christian. This is why you are obedient as a Christian. This is why you're going to do the things I'm going to ask you to do. And I want to pause and remind us what he said. This is the motivation behind all that he's going to charge us with. And it's this. Chapter uh, 12, verse 1a. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Because of the mercy that God showed on us by pouring out his son Jesus Christ on the cross. Let that be the motivation behind what you're all going to get ready to go do. What I'm calling you to go do. So this is important to understand because Christianity, if you thought that it was, hey, do this, 
uh, obey this, be better, do better, and then hopeful that God is going to have mercy on you someday, that's actually backwards. It's, I've shown mercy to you through the form of Jesus Christ and the cross. Now go live in light of what I've told you. Now go obey, right? So it's exactly backwards. And in verse 1 and 2, here's what Paul said. He said, in light of the mercies of God, he said, give yourself as a total sacrifice to God. Give him all of it. Don't give him a part of yourself. Don't give him your heart. Give him your entire life because of the mercy of God. And then verses 3 through 8 last week, he said, because of the mercies of God, Give yourselves to each other. The saints, use the gifts that God has given you in order to serve one another in the church body. So that's the motivation that he has been laying these out. And this is really the motivation of all commands in the Bible. No matter where you pick it up in um, Genesis or Revelation, if there's a command in Scripture and obedience to be done, it is rooted because of the mercy of God. It's the proper understanding. Here's what Paul's going to do today. He is going to say, by the mercies of God, he's going to charge us, the church, to genuinely love each other. To love each other with a genuine love. He's going to define what this is. We're going to seek that is. Because in our, our culture, the word love um, is skewed. It's very tainted. We use the same word uh, for chocolate as uh, our shoes, our spouse, our kids. Uh, man, you get a lot of definitions of what the, the word love is. We're not going to seek the definition through uh, Wikipedia, Google, Friends, Facebook. We're going to look at the word of God and what he says about love. Um, and today, uh, Paul is going to tell us that love is more than a feeling. That's our bottom line. So if you're a Boston fan, you're going to really like that one. Uh, but it's more than a feeling. We're going to let God define that through the text this morning. So let's, uh, let's pray before we get into it today. God, first, before we even uh, get started, we simply adore you. We adore you for who you are. You are Father. You are good. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are all to be revered. You are merciful to us. So thank you, God. Father, in that moment, we quickly confess that we are not holy. We are not perfect. We fall short of your glory and expectations every single day. We're not as good as we think that we are. Father, thank you for your mercy that you pour out. Even though we are not, you still are. You are faithful to us. And then, Father, as we set those up today, now we're coming to you with a need. We have supplication to give you this morning. And, God, what we need you to do for us is we need you to define genuine love. Help us to define it. And then, Father, help us to live out genuine love the way that you tell us that it should be. We love you so much. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so let's go 9 through 10, and that's where we're going to be this morning. But before we do, uh, before we get into the text, I want to remind us of the context to which Paul's writing. He's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to committed followers. Uh, now, there's a difference here because when the, uh, the Scriptures are writing to the crowd, you've got people that are not Christian. You have some Christians. There's a scattered idea of a general uh, crowd that he's talking to. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to specifically church people, this community uh, that, that he's saying that has this special affinity for each other. And here's what he's basically saying. 
that we have this commonality among us, this thing that's rooted in the mercies of God, and he's trying to tell us how to live in light of this biblical community uh, that, that he has laid out, which is the church. Uh, what I want to talk about is community, okay? Because he's talking about biblical community. But you guys know as well as I do, you can have community uh, that is not centered on the gospel. You can have center that's not rooted in Christ, right? You, you have communities that are kind of out there in your life that you have those pockets uh, with. I, I want to tell you how our generation is currently, uh, there's this uh, manufactured shortcut generation that it kind of puts out this superficial connectivity. Uh, we're at a, a day and an age where it, feel, it feels that we have more resources. We have a wider uh, ability to, to have connectivity to, with a lot, a lot of people, but there's actually not very much depth in there. It's very wide, uh, but it's also very, very shallow. Um, if you think about um, our social media context, uh, all of those ways. You have your, your Twitter followers, your Facebook friends. I, I think my Facebook says I have 1,200 friends, although it doesn't seem like that at all. There's this idea that you can have connectivity uh, that, is, that is rooted, but it's very superficial and it's not very deep at all. In a moment, you can uh, let people know what your baby ate for breakfast, like just like that, the most meaningful or meaningless information possible. Like, why do I need to know that? Uh, uh, or you can, you can take a picture of your, your cheddar's uh, appetizer today after lunch, and you can post it on Instagram, and you can make everyone envious of your chicken tenders. There's just this idea that you can create this counterfeit community, like people know me, Right? But there's no depth there. It's very shallow and something has gone awry with how we define community. All right. And I believe that there's some reasons why those relationships that are superficial, why those, those things don't last, why they're not rooted, why they're not deep. I believe this, there's a couple of reasons why. One would be um, it's because our commonalities are based upon uh, maybe life stages. Okay, so let me, let me paint this picture. So when uh, me and my wife Callie were, were married, young, four kids, unchurched, uh, not in love with the Lord, we were friends with other uh, families like-minded who had kids, and we did the same things together, right? We had uh, four kids all playing sports at the same time. Uh, we were all over the place. But what we had was these little little communities with each one of those pockets of people. Uh, we, we went out to eat together after games. We hung out on the weekends. We went to pool parties. We had little communities with the places that we just kind of naturally did. But here's what began to happen. Those relationships begin to fade. And here's why. Kids grow. Kids grow up. Life changes Teams changed it, uh, changed, and then we started just naturally drift apart from those relationships that we had built upon those commonalities. They begin to flee, and maybe you know uh, what I'm talking about. Maybe you have your community that was based upon something like that was maybe your your job. You have a job, you have this community of people, but then you change jobs and your relationships change because your commonalities change. You have a school. You change your schools, uh, maybe the teams that your kids play on, but there are all these fleeing commonalities that, that just don't seem to last. It's because they're rooted in uh, unbiblical, not Christ-like things, okay? Another way that you see commonalities uh, functioning is 
Maybe you have an affinity for, for, uh, for exercise, people that exercise together, right? They kind of develop these little communities together. They, they run, they work out. They do yoga, they do maybe shake weight classes together. Uh, I don't know if anybody actually does those, but I mean, it's kind of funny to picture that for just a moment. But they, they have these little communities that they just, man, this is great. We're the runners, we're the exercisers, we're the yoga people, we do that. But the body has a way of kind of breaking down as we age, as, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the body has a way of taking those hobbies away from you, right? Uh, you can get injured more easily than you ever have before as you age. Uh, you can twist your ankle while brushing your teeth, all right? Some basic things. Uh, you go to bed one night, you feel really good, and you wake up, and you literally, your back is thrown out, and you did nothing, you're like on the DL by sleeping, okay? Uh, the body begins to age out, and then what happens is you aren't able to maintain those communities because the commonalities have changed. Uh, so there's this something that has gone awry, but we are a different group of people. So here's what Paul's going to, he's pulling us in because we don't have fleeing commonalities, we have a commonality that's rooted in Christ. So it doesn't matter what season of life that you change, no matter where your kids go, no matter what job you have, no matter where you live, what neighborhood, you have the church. And there's a deeper-rooted uh, commonality that we have. So here's what Paul's going to tell us today, that we have this genuine love for each other that you don't find uh, in all of these other commonalities. There's not a deep-rooted, genuine love that we have. And that's what Paul is charging us to have for each other in the church. All right, let's keep that context in mind. So let's move forward and let's see what he's got to say about this genuine love in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Let it be authentic. Let it be real. Let it not be uh, dishonest. Let it not be uh, hypocritical. Let it be authentic. Let it be real. But before we can even begin to see what that looks like, we have got to define what love is. Or better yet, we have to let God decide what love is. Because see, God created love. He is the, the origin of love. Love was not man's idea based upon an overflow of emotion. So then they gave it a word. Uh, let's call this love. God created love. So he gets to define it. What is love? What is the Bible's definition of love? This is very important. Look at this in 1 John 4, 7 through 10. This is love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Here is how he manifests his love. Here's the definition of love. Here's the visible demonstration of love in the flesh. It goes from a word that has no picture to now here is love. And it says this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Not that, not that, that's not the definition of love, that we love God. But that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of for our sins. That word propitiation, our substitute, the substitute for our sins. Here's what that text just said. 
that if you have not surrendered to Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, that you are not born of God, you do not have a relationship with God, therefore you cannot understand what true, genuine love actually is. You are settling for a perverted, uh, skewed version, definition of the word love. It's manufactured. It's what's been taught. You can't comprehend what love is because love, what we just read, is defined by the cross. If you don't know what the cross is, there is no love. There's no love of God apart from the cross. And out of that proper understanding of what true love is, then that love begins to overflow into our horizontal relationships. I can now understand how to love my wife, how to love your spouse because you understand what sacrificial love is. You understand how to love your brother and your sister in church because it is based upon the same sacrificial love of the gospel. Outside of this cross, no one will experience the love of God. I say that to you, if that's maybe you today, because that's the most loving thing that I can tell you. The most unloving thing that I could do for you today was tell you how awesome that you are. How great you are to chase your dreams and your passions, to be better, to do better. That would be so unloving of me. The loving thing for me to do is to say, Get under the cross. Because only there will you ever experience the love of God. Outside of there, you won't. I want to take a moment to share with you a shocking reality. Uh, there's a guy named Carl Lentz. And Carl Lentz is, a, uh, he is the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York. He is a trending, hip pastor to the stars. Uh, he is gaining a lot of steam in the country. And, and I want, he had an opportunity to have this interview with Oprah Winfrey, the, the non-spiritual spiritualist. And, and she asked him some questions. Um, and I'm sorry for you Oprah fans, okay? Uh, but he had an opportunity to have this interview with her, and uh, it was going really good. She asked Carl Lentz, what do you believe in? This guy's a, has a Christian church. It's growing. It seems to be very healthy on the outside. And then he starts talking about Christianity being about relationship and not religion. It's about transformation, not behavior modification. I'm tracking with this brother right here. I like what he's saying. Man, this is good. Carl, tell him. Tell Oprah, right? And then Oprah steps in and says, Carl, I need to ask you this question. Uh, can you tell me this? Do you believe that Christians are the only ones that can have a relationship with God? Without hesitation, Carl said, no. He said, no, no I don't believe that. I believe that God is so loving, uh, we cannot even comprehend how loving God is. And there are many ways to God. That's what he said. That's what he said. That you can get the love of God outside of the cross of Christ. Man, we need to be guarded against that. We need to be aware and we need to tell the person who's hearing that in a loving way. Listen, that's wrong. Let me tell you how to get into the love of God. Let me tell you how to experience the love of God and avoid the wrath of God. Share the gospel. right? That's the loving thing that we do is to tell people the truth. Now let's move forward. He said, let love be genuine. Now, the idea behind this word genuine here is let it be without hypocrisy. Let it be without hypocrisy. We are well acquainted 
with this word. Now, he's warning uh, against hypocrisy in the church. Uh, I say this because it's easy uh, for people to uh, put on an external image but not a current reality and mimic Christian behavior. Right? It's easy to come in here to go through the motions, to go through the doors, to shake the hands, to sit down, to sing the songs, to get up here and know how to talk, uh, know how to sing, to get up and literally you get into worship and you can sing right and you can do the T-Rex hands or you can do the, the chest pat thing, you can do that. Listen, I, if you do those things, keep doing them, all right? I'm not telling you to not because I, I love doing those too. What I'm saying is it's easy to duplicate or mimic Christian behavior when on the, on the inside you are torn up. You are hurting. You are broken. Uh, you are distant from God. And you can have this portrayal of this external uh, picture of health, but internally you are very, very unhealthy. Paul's saying, that's hypocrisy. Don't do that. He said, be real. Be honest. We are, if, if we are a people that, are, that the premise of our commonality is based upon the gospel, which says... That the only reason that we are found favorable, favorable in the sight of God is because we have trusted in the righteousness of God and found our own righteousness to be lacking. We're all fall short of the glory of God. We're all miserably, woefully falling short of his expectations and in righteousness. And then we surrender to that and that is where we find favor in God's sight. If that is the basis of our premise, why would we ever come into this place and try to pretty ourselves up more than we actually are? Why would we uh, doctor up our image and blur it and, and tweak it and make us look better than we actually are? This is a safe place to let genuine love occur and not to be full of hypocrisy. Let us be honest with where we are. And we also know that uh, the, the charge against the church outside of these walls when it comes to hypocrisy is they're hypocrites, right? By the unchurched that don't come in, uh, that don't experience what we experience, they say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They talk one way, they live another. They go to church on Sunday, and then they live like I do through the week. Let me respond in two ways, not only to you, but also arm you with a defense and a response to those people, right? Track with me on this. The first thing that I would say is, listen, uh, we need to make war against the hypocrisy in our own lives. Anything in our lives that doesn't match our mouth, that makes us look like unchristians, like non-Christians, we need to make war against those things and kill it and snuff it out because we are called to be beacons of light in a dark world, to shine bright, so we need to make war against those things and never settle with, I'm not perfect. No way. Christians have a wartime mentality against the hypocrisy. The second thing I will say to this is this. Because of our fallen nature, because of the remnant of the flesh that remains in us and our unregenerate bodies, we all have some hypocrisy in us. Every one of us. If we didn't have hypocrisy in us, we would be perfect Right, And we would be named Jesus, and that's not the case. right? So we're fighting against that. So here, let me, let me tell you this. Today, I'm going to preach genuine love to you. Have genuine love amongst brothers and sisters. And you know what I'm going to do today, later? I'm not going to show genuine love to one of you in here today. I'm just being real. right? I'm going to fall short. You are going to fall short of genuine love. But here is the reality. 
I'm very aware of my own hypocrisy. I'm not in denial. I'm fighting it tooth and nail and gripping it. I don't want it in my life. I want to purge it away. And that is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. We acknowledge our hypocrisy and we're in a place that's a hospital for sick sinners and we're fighting against it. So arm yourselves to come back with that defense. Invite those people into this place. I see empty seats a lot. We have room for more hypocrites, right? Bring them in. Fight the hypocrisy with us. Join us in the battle, right? We, we acknowledge our own hypocrisy, okay? Uh, let's keep going um, in this text because Paul is going to now tell us um, what, what, what genuine love looks like and what it doesn't look like, okay? First thing it says, genuine love abhors evil. The word abhors, loathe, detest, hates evil in the world not dislikes but absolutely has a has a hatred for the evil in this world let me set it up like this Uh, the first is us the church all together the big church universal church we acknowledge and we hate the evil that is in this world that we don't have a a numbness god help us if we ever get numb to the evil in this world but we have an overall hatred and a detest against evil in the world. In order for us to understand what evil is, there has to be uh, there has to be a judge of what is evil and what is not evil, correct? We have to know what it is. That's where the Bible comes in. We are so dogmatic about the Bible because the Bible reveals what is evil and what is not. And it doesn't change with the times. 2000 years ago, homosexuality was wrong, abortion was wrong. And it doesn't change today based upon who is going to be the next Supreme Court justice, who is going to be the next politician, the next president. It doesn't change with the times because the Bible is timeless. And it says, this is what's evil and this is not. And I want you to hate these things. So I want to help you and I want to help myself through the reading of this this next bit I've got to talk about to help us hating evil. I want you to hate this evil that is in the world. The first thing I want you to know is there is currently 20.9 million victims of human trafficking in this world today. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And over 50% of those failed marriages, infidelity, was at the root cause of those things. Pornography at the root cause of tearing up a biblical marriage, splitting up kids impacting their life, leaving carnage in the background. God hates divorce, no matter what you might hear outside the wall. Sometimes people say, I'm getting divorced. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, it's actually okay. It's good. No, it's never good. It's never good. I want you to understand that. Divorce hates, or God hates divorce. It is not a win. It is never a victory to be celebrated. Does God's grace cover that? Does he give stipulations on why we can and cannot get divorced? Yes, but it doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. We hate the evil that divorce is and the repercussions of what it has in our family dynamics. Abortion, the growing evil of today. You realize that There are more people killed by abortion each year 
than cancer and heart disease combined. 3,000 babies a day aborted in the United States. 120,000 babies aborted globally in the nation. There were more people killed on 9-12 and 9-13 than all of 9-11 combined. When you see terrorism on CNN, no one has a problem against terrorism. Every nation, every creed, color wants to fight against terrorism. But what's baffling is when people say that they love Jesus Christ and they don't hate abortion, even though the Bible clearly says that life begins in the womb at conception. How can you do that? Right? CNN shows a video of a terrorist bombing. Outrage. Let's rally the world. You don't see videos of aborted babies being on CNN because if you did, you would see an outright hatred and abhorring of the evil that it is. We acknowledge the evil in the world. As a church, corporately, we fight. We don't become numb to those things. Now, the second thing in the context of what Paul's writing here is that this abhorring of evil has a personal responsibility. We have a responsibility personally to abhor the evil in our own lives and also to abhor the evil that is in our community together. So there's two aspects. Let's talk about the first, abhorring the evil in our own lives. If we all fall short of the glory of God, we all have some remnant of the flesh in our lives that we have not fully surrendered to Christ. That means we still live in sin. We have blind spots that we don't see. If we saw them, they wouldn't be called blind spots. We need other brothers and sisters to lovingly come alongside and point out our blind spots to abhor the evil in our lives. And we need to invite people to do that. We need to be okay with that because that is the most loving thing that we can do. This idea that this, uh, there's this community aspect to abhorring the evil. Let me tell you what's unloving. To watch a brother, to watch a sister who is living in sin, cohabitation, drunkenness, idolatry, play it out in many ways, is to see them in those dangerous places and sit back and say, I hope that really works out for them. I, I'm, we need to put them on the prayer list. We need to talk about them. I really hope the best for them, but let's stay back here and hope that really goes well for them. They're really walking dangerously, but I'm not going to engage them. Right? If that's how I play it, is that not the most unloving thing that I could do to see someone in danger and let them continue to walk in that path? You, you would never do that with your kids, would you? Oh, they're playing out in Sam Riley Parkway today. I hope that goes well. It's going to go really, well, it might go bad. It might be dangerous, but, but man, it, maybe it won't. I don't know. They might have fun. No, you walk over, you snatch them up, and you say, you see that squirrel? That could be you, right? You pull them up. That don't need to be you. Get out, right? They're in danger. 
or, or uh, your child, and you give your child unlimited, unrestricted access to the internet. No filters, no protections. Here it is. I hope this goes well for you. I hope you don't engage in pornography. Uh, I don't really know how this is going to go. Uh, I know there's a lot of sex trafficking that occurs on the internet, but I'm just going to give this to you, and I'm just going to hope it goes well. Or you're in denial about what they're actually going to do. Oh, not my child. My child won't do that. Right? I hope this goes well. If I get in there and I tell them that it's dangerous for them, they might get hostile to me. It might be an argument. Uh, I, don't, I really want them to be my friend. I don't want to break this up. So I'm just going to let them do it and hope it just works out. Doesn't that make me a bad parent if that's how I play it? It is. I, I, I'm telling you, it absolutely is. The most loving thing to do is to tell people what's something that's not good for them. This is dangerous. You are walking down somewhere you don't need to go, and I love you too much. So that has got to happen in this church if we genuinely love each other. If we don't genuinely love each other, we won't do those things. We'll check out and say, that's uncomfortable. The world's going to tell me that's very judgmental of me. I wouldn't dream of doing that. No, it's actually opposite. Paul says, if you don't, it's unloving. Genuine says, I'm worried about you. And then the recipient of that says, thank you for pointing out my blind spot. I know you genuinely love me because you, you're calling me out of danger. That is what we do. Number one, for you, you got to invite somebody in to do that. Right? It's a reciprocating relationship. You invite someone in and say, hey, bro, keep an eye out for my blind spots. I need you to do that. Would you reciprocate that with me? Can I do that with you? Absolutely, because I genuinely love you. You need to have someone in your life that you are doing that. But here, Paul goes on to say, it's not just going around. Genuine love is not just going around and blowing the referee, uh, being the referee and blowing sin fouls, right? Walking around, boop, blow, blow you, sin over here, sin there, and just kind of calling fouls everywhere. That would be absolutely miserable. How, I mean, how? Ugh, who would want to be a part of that? No one would. He tells us, to hold fast to what is good. So genuine love not only abhors the evil, but it holds fast to what is good. It encourages us to see the good in people, to see the good in the church, and hold fast. This is good. You are good. I want to encourage you, brother, sister, to keep doing what you're doing. Keep marching on. You are doing great things. And this has got to be something we're very careful of as we engage the church and can be consumeristic sometimes. We come in and, uh, and we want to point out all the fouls, right? This is wrong and that's wrong and that person's wrong and they need to quit doing that. And we just we forget to hold fast to what is good and encourage each other. Now, I will tell you right now, the Lord is really convicting me personally in this area. He says, R.C., you need to be more encouraging to your people. You need to remind them of the good that they are doing. They're not perfect people. When's the last time you came up to someone and said, listen, I love what you're doing. You're holding that baby down there today. While a parent can, can worship with their, their spouse. When's the last time you've encouraged someone in this body to stay strong and hold fast to what is good. You've gone up to your child's teacher and said, thank you for loving my child. Thank you for serving this church. Thank you for standing at the door and shaking people's hands today. Thank you for serving in the cafe. 
I saw what you did right there, and it really moved me. It, it really inspired me to do more. Let us encourage one another and hold fast to what is good. Let's move on in the text in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's leave this text up. Uh, this idea of loving one another with brotherly affection. Uh, the idea behind brotherly, that's where we get the word Philadelphia, which is a brotherly love. And here's what Paul is saying. That you should have a greater affinity, a greater passion, a greater genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ than your family who are not Christian. Let me, let me, I want to make sure that I clarify that. That what we have is deeper rooted than maybe all of the earthly relationships that you have with your family that are not Christian. Now, if they're in the church, that's awesome because they flow right into this. But we should have a greater affection for our Christian brothers and sisters than our non-Christian earthly families. You see, we're all part. Uh, every race, every creed, every color, we are all in here, brothers and sisters from another mother. All right, that's us. That's who we are. We have that in common till the end, the eternal relationships. And that is where he wants us to love with brotherly affection. But if we're being honest with each other, Paul just commanded us to feel something. I'm not suggesting that you love each other. I'm not saying this would be good for you. It's a command to love each other despite what we may feel about someone else. So we're taking feelings out of the equation, right? Because if we're honest, there's probably some people that, that love Jesus, but you don't really feel like loving them. You know what I mean? I don't really like that person. And here Paul's telling us to love, right? Now there's a difference between like and love. There are going to be people who love the Lord that you don't necessarily like. But this is not optional. Paul's talking about a deeper-rooted love that says, I've seen his weakness, his struggles, his failures, his repeated over and over again struggles, and I still love him. I'm not leaving him. We might not be hanging out every week, but I still love him, and I'm not bouncing. I'm not getting out of this, and I'm not leaving this person. Paul's command. He goes on. Let me, let me read a passage about this love. 1 John 3.14. This is the commandment of love. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we, have, we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he is not who he has seen cannot love whom God who is not seen. So he says we're devoted to each other. We have to. It's a command. Now, if we think uh, we have to manufacture feelings of love towards all people in Christ, that's kind of going to be a dangerous place. As I said, there's people that you may not have a lot of strong emotions and feelings for. But you've got to remember here, that the same cross that covered your sins covered theirs as well. And we need to be careful about not judging other people's sins because theirs are different than yours. Right? The same grace, same cross covers all of those things. So that's the rootedness behind the love. That's why in John's gospel, Jesus said, love others as I've loved you. It wasn't conditional. Right? As Jesus displayed the love, which was the cross, right? He didn't stop because he wasn't feeling it anymore. 
right? Because I'm quite sure with the first whip of the cat of nine tails, he probably felt pain. It probably felt like he didn't want to continue with the cross. It wasn't based upon feelings. It was based on a covenant commitment that he had made to his church. And that is the covenant community, the genuine brotherly love that we are to have. It's not based upon feelings. It's based upon covenant, not contract. Contracts are broken. Covenant says, I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, your worst, and I love you in spite of you. I'm not going anywhere. Paul wraps up with his last command in this passage and says, finally, outdo one another. Outdo one another. So it's like, okay, are you creating this competition uh, with each other where we get this trophy at the end? We're competing with each other on how good to do. No, that's not what Paul's saying. But Paul, what is he saying is that should we outdo one another thinking self-sacrificing instead of self-pleasing? Not what's in it for me, not what that person's doing for me, but I'm going to outdo that brother and that sister. I'm going to outdo them in good deeds and love and showing them everything. Not based upon what they're doing for me, but because I'm going to do these things. And this is a, a picture of why you see so many marriages fail. The root cause is obviously sin, but it's this idea, what are you doing for me? It's 50-50. You're not pulling your weight. I'm not happy anymore. I'm out of here. Why am I going to serve you and do anything for you? Because you aren't doing anything for me. And then there you have marriage strife and it comes in. Paul's defining genuine love, it's outdoes each other. I am going to love you more than you're going to love me in a healthy way. I am, you don't, I, you're not deserving of my love, right? But I'm going to give it to you anyway. You're not doing things that earn my love. There's not this back and forth. I'm going to love you in spite of you. And I'm just going to outdo you. If you are here today and you're walking through any marital strife, friction, Husband, wife, those things. The most best advice I could give you, it actually comes from Paul, not from me, is this. Outdo your spouse. Outdo them in showing them honor. Now that's countercultural. You're going to find a lot of worldly marriage counselors that will not tell you the truth and will not say that. It's 50-50. No, it's 100%. Both people giving 100%. Regardless of what the other person is giving, it's not conditional. Jesus Christ's love was not conditional. So start with that. If you have two spouses who both love the Lord, this is what you do, outdo. If you have a spouse, one that loves the Lord and one does not, they can't do that. Don't try to make them. Don't try to make them love, genuine love, because it's not in them to do it. What you do is you get on your knees and you pray to God that he saves you, saves them. Saves my husband, saves my wife, Save them and give them this kind of love that is not self-pleasing, but it is self-sacrificial. It's a healthy, you are stirring me up, I'm stirring you up. It's this back and forth for the common good to hold fast. So as we close up, here's what I want to do. I want to put some hands and feet, some physicality to this passage that we just did. Because I want to be honest with you. To execute this passage, 9 and 10, you cannot do this on Sunday. You, you clearly know that we're not going to abhor evil on Sunday. I'm not going to start getting a whistle, like I said, and pointing your sins out through the room. I don't want you coming in the doors with whistles in your mouth, pointing out everybody's issue. 
right? I don't, that, that's not going to happen in this place on Sunday. We're too big. We are the second largest church in Smyrna, congregation-wise, behind the Smyrna campus. I don't know if y'all knew that. On an average Sunday, we're at 450 to 475 total people on this campus. We cannot genuinely love each other, abhor one another's evil. We cannot hold fast to each other's good. We cannot outdo each other if we don't know each other. And that cannot happen on Sunday. It can't happen with your, your infrequent attendance in this place. It cannot. There are two ways that you can be obedient to this text. And this is where I really want to push everyone to and encourage you to do these things. The first thing is you've got to belong instead of come here. When you come here and you don't belong, once again, no one can encourage you because they don't know what you're walking through. No one can abhor your evil because they don't know who you are. You won't abhor someone else's evil because you don't know what their evil is. You are unknown. You must start with belonging to this church or another good Bible-believing church. That's where you've got to start. The second step for you is that you have got to get into a smaller group, a pocket of people in a community. You have to. Because we all know that all of you guys are not going to leave out here on Monday morning and you're all going to meet somewhere and you're going to all do these things. It's just not realistic. But can you get together with five to ten people? Yeah. Can you get together with three to five people? Yeah. You're going to need to if you're going to be able to do these things. God has wired us to be in a smaller community so we can do things like this. And if you're not, you're going to be unknown. You won't experience the blessing of someone engaging you when you're in your darkest, deepest, dangerous place. And you'll, you'll walk through that road. You'll go down that pathway because no one knows you're doing it. And you'll look back and you'll say, man, I wish somebody would have told me. Right? I wish somebody would have encouraged me. I was really down. I'm very down right now. I'm very desperate right now. I'm going through very difficult times. But no one's listening. I post something on Facebook and it's crickets. No one knows me. Listen, get into a smaller group of people you can do life with. You can celebrate God's blessings. You can watch each other's dark spots, blind spots, encourage, hold fast. All of these things that we have learned today. So if you are not in some kind of a pocket where you can do that, some kind of smaller community, I want to give you a place to go today. Uh, John Diamond, who is our, our small group's uh, leader, he is good at assimilating people, gathering them together. Um, he's going to be outside at the Next Steps area um, or that adults table. You'll see him out there. Uh, we want to help you help yourself because there will be a time, as I've said this before, where you will need those people, and we want to help you get to know them. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, we are uh, in awe of who you are, and we are so undeserving of your love. But that didn't stop you. Your love is unconditional. The cross wasn't meant on feelings or emotions. God, it was rooted in covenant. God, I pray that we start to look at this church and the people in here. We are a covenant of people. Not to be broken. To genuinely love each other. To abhor the evil. 
Stir one another up in good works and hold fast to what is good. We love you. We pray these things today by the love of Christ in his name. Amen.